Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show where we interview professionals that work in the world of water. We're brought to you by the Connecticut Scuba Academy, and you can find us on Twitter at Blue Earth Pod. Today's guest is Sandra Klopp, a diver and instructor who has worked all over the world in all types of environments, from first-time diving instruction to exploring the Andrea Doria. How are you doing, Sandra? Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, so I, I, you clearly have a pretty impressive resume of just different places you've been and explored and kind of viewed the world in a different capacity than a lot of r- regular folk, I guess you could say, um, have. So I want to talk to you about all that, but first... Um, can you talk to me about how you were introduced to like the world of water, what you did to get started? I grew up on sailboats. So when I was a kid, my dad would be out on the bay every weekend that he could. So I got used to being out on the water all day long as a very small child before the days of iPads and everything. So I think just learning how to be patient out on the water all day set me up to do some of the dives that I do today. That was a hard part for me. My dad also had a boat and would go fishing a lot, and I could never focus or stay entertained for that long of a time. How Did you like it off the bat, or was it something you grew into loving? I think I learned how to be bored, which helps me a lot on my decompression hangs. Because sometimes I'll, you know, if you're doing an hour or two hours of decompression, um, I know that we can bring books and movies and stuff down there. But I think I learned how to go into some sort of a meditative state as a child being out on the sailboat all day long, having nothing to do and being bored, you learn how to how to deal with that. So it's not so bad. Yeah, I think comfort with your own thoughts and your and comfortable with nothing is kind of a, a lost art, especially with a lot of younger people today. Um, that's a good skill to have, I'm sure. Yeah. With diving. Um, so you so you're on boats as a kid a lot, sailboats, which uh seemed like a lovely experience. When did you get into diving specifically? Were you older? Was that when you were young too? I was. It was when I was in college and I started traveling um, for spring break. I, I did try dives in, um, in Mexico and in Australia. And then when I studied abroad in South Africa, I didn't have to work because the exchange rate uh, ran to the dollar. It, it would have been um, not worth me working there. And so in order to find something to do, a lot of the international students joined the underwater club. So we worked on our scuba license, our open water and our advanced open water on the weekends. That's awesome. So when you went to college, what were you going to school for? I majored in English and economics at Rutgers University. And my original plan was to be a lawyer. And as I was taking the LSATs, I found a way that would have gotten me a better score involving the experimental section. And I was planning to retake them in a year or two to get me the score I wanted to get to balance out my grades to get me into the law school that I wanted to go to. So I took a, a year to just travel around the world and go teach English in Thailand. And then as I was doing that, I fell into a dive master program before I took a teaching job after we got TEFL certified. After I earned a TEFL certificate to teach English in Thailand, I ended up on PP Island and I did my dive master class ended up just staying and getting into the dive world and put off law school for another year. Um, ended up never going, went back to New York and got a finance job and worked on my instructor license while I was doing that in New York city. That is quite a range of experiences. Um, you talked about when you first were in college and you started diving on uh, spring breaks, what were those experiences like your first times diving? Was it like a an eye-opening experience for you? It was. And it, it wasn't run how the agencies now 
tell you to run a discover class with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I was on spring break in Mexico and I was on a boat and they just wiggled the regulator at me and they told me to breathe from it and equalize, but they told me not to work the low pressure inflator hose that they would do that. And they just kind of threw me off the boat. That was it. So wow. there was no um, pool session or reading or discussions on any of the hazards of scuba diving. It was just in you go. And they snapped my picture standing there with my old Princeton High School basketball jersey and the snorkel in my mouth. And <laughs> the rest is history. That's crazy. Uh, yeah, but it was it was really fun. And I remember my dive master had an angelfish tattoo, and I was like, "Wow, that's the lifestyle. Look at that." <laughs> Um, what actually kind of puts me into one of my first questions is the technology has very clearly, I'm sure, changed over uh, your career, right? Things have become different. So can you talk about some of the improvements to diving tech and even just the way it's taught that you've seen since when you started to now? Sure. I think in terms of the basic scuba equipment, um, my aunt is still diving regulators from the 1970s. So in terms of the, the basic scuba equipment, um, I think the real leaps forward have been in the on the technical side of the spectrum. So we have rebreather development, which continues to improve technologically speaking every year. One of the biggest changes has been in constantly involving decompression theory and how do we approach what's going on inside of our bodies. One of the new things that's been happening is Doppler ultrasound bubble tests, which are showing us how our individual bodies are bubbling when exposed to different factors like cold and depth and how long we're staying down at the bottom, what gradient factor we're using. So we now have the capability to start to study our own individual bodies. And I think it's going to have a huge impact on how we do decompression and teach decompression theory. So for example, Odive has come out with a little sonogram device that you can hold on your chest after a dive. And Dan is now doing studies in Raleigh at Mystery Lake. And what they're doing is they're looking to see if this device can be relied upon for feedback. One of the most interesting things in the rebreather world is the constant invention of new machines. We have some very interesting units on the market today. Um, we've got units that are being designed by cave divers for cave divers, which allow you to, inside of a cave system, safely kind of manipulate and gun the, the machine in front of you for some of the side mount rebreathers or front mount rebreathers. Um, we've got machines which are designed to kind of sit very low profile or, along both sides of your body. Um, and then we have machines that have come out recently, which have different kinds of features like multiple oxygen sensors or broad spectrum carbon dioxide detector in the lungfish units, which over time, it, it seems to not be giving false positives, which means it's giving an accurate indication of the carbon dioxide levels, which is very important for a rebreather diver. That's, I think it's it's interesting, obviously, right? Your your body's going through major changes under the water, stuff that you're not, I guess, quote unquote, supposed to be doing. And so I feel like the technology is just trying to work against that natural state of being. And I, I think it's important to try to do things like minimize um, 
decompression times while still maintaining safety and that kind of stuff is really intriguing. Right, exactly. Because when you're doing a decompression hang, until you're out of the water and on the boat with your equipment off, you're still always at risk while you're diving. So if we want to exit the water with the least amount of microbubbles possible, and we don't want to do unnecessary decompression for the safety aspect of that, then we really need some new technology in order to study our own individual physiologies. Yeah, it seems like the next step, you know, getting into the individual aspects, because I feel like a lot of the technology now covers the general, but everyone reacts very individually, you know? If the ODIVE proves itself as a reliable device to study our microbubbles, then it could really impact how each individual is planning their decompression dives, or even their non-decompression dives, to stay away from that threshold. You are a diver and you're an educator. And I was curious how you got into the dive instructing. Was that a goal you had from the start? Did you kind of naturally fall into that as you became a better diver? I fell into that gradually over time. I had been a dive master in Thailand and I enjoyed that. And I decided I want to go the instructor route. And while I was living in Manhattan, I would teach on weekends for fun. And over time, I developed my own training facility and I started doing more and more teaching. What does your facility offer uniquely or how do you guys approach scuba in a way that some other places might not? I require buoyancy trim and team awareness from day one, dive one at the open water level. So I focus first on buoyancy and trim as a core requirement for the diver. And we don't do skills unless that person is in skydiver position, comfortably hovering off the bottom, not sculling hands and feet, trimmed out. And everybody in the team is facing everybody else in the team in such a manner that we can all see each other. And if any of these things is not in line, then we stop the training class, we stop the skills, and we reposition, we get our buoyancy trim and team awareness back. So what this creates is a team of divers who are highly aware of themselves and their teammates. And when a problem happens, they can deal with it safely with 100% focus on the issue. That feels like a good foundational skill for any diver to have. And maybe one that's, that feels like a very professional thought process. Cause when you're in the water doing professional dives, you have to have stuff like awareness of the people around you because safety is most important. That's, that's a, that is a good, unique factor to, uh, to your facility. It is. And most agencies don't require hovering at the entry level. RAID does. They require 30 seconds in the open water class and a minute for higher level classes. Agencies like TDI will say at the tech level, you need 60 seconds of hovering. So I think what's starting to happen in the scuba industry is the training agencies are starting to require the buoyancy control that oftentimes isn't taught in beginner level classes. Well, there's not a negative to teaching that kind of stuff to everybody. All it does is make the community safer as a whole from every level, you know? It does, but it takes a lot more time to teach. Sure. And as an instructor, you, you have to learn to do it yourself first off, and then you have to learn how to teach it. So being able to do something, being able to teach something are two different things. And that's where the challenges arise, because if you're not taught to dive a certain way, or you're not taught to teach a certain way, then it changes the whole educational system 
in diving, whereas most people aren't teaching buoyancy trim team awareness as a core skill. Sure. Has your experiences as an educator changed how you view diving, changed how you view scuba as a whole, or is, is it uh, kind of a second nature to how you were taught? When I first started doing it, it was all just a lot of fun to to swim around, see really cool things and explore underwater. And I think it just developed into approaching it more as an educator and how do I keep people safe? So I think I, I take diving a little bit more seriously now in the sense that I'm responsible for teaching people how to dive safely. That's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm sure part of that just comes with as you build a career, you become more aware of some of those facets. What I want to ask that's kind of an easy jump to make here is over the years, over your time um, as a diver, what kind of mistakes have you had to learn from or what things have you learned, be it stylistically or whatever, that you do differently than you used to or individual experiences that taught you important lessons in the water? Yes, management is, is a big one. So I teach rule thirds now, even to my beginners, because this ensures that they can always get back to the boat safely if they follow that method of managing their gas versus be back on the boat with 500 PSI. So uh, eventually, if you keep diving, you're going to run into an issue underwater, which is going to take up more time than you thought or hemorrhage gas. And it's always unexpected. And it's always a lot of times unpredictable too. So how do you deal with one of the biggest issues, which is not running out of gas on the water. Because in the end, that's what kills people is when they, they run out of gas, right? So after training technical diving through TDI for many years, I've started to train my beginners with a tech diver gas management methodology. Yeah, that's, that's smart. And I think, again, that's stuff that comes with with experience that you know when you're young it's like you said kind of a fun you're diving it's cool but it's also it can be dangerous if you're not handling it correctly you know yeah yeah so i want to get into some of your fun experiences diving some of your exploration if you could just for people that don't know you for a minute talk about um what your byline is as a diver what kind of stuff you do where your focus is and then we'll get into some of those specifics i've got a lot of different projects that I love to work on everything from offshore megalodon teeth to cave exploration to deep shipwreck exploration um Dondria Doria or going up to Canada done some pretty cool dives with Ocean Quest and Jill Heiner where we go and we go to faraway places and we just dive somewhere we don't think any humans have been yet. The biggest lifestyle change for me came when COVID shut down New York City. So Instead of having a home base to go and do everything, I ended up buying a pickup truck so I could try and find work in a state that was open. And I went to North Carolina because I was hoping to get involved with more megalodon teeth hunting. And that's where I'm currently based right now. So when the weather is good, we go offshore and we're constantly scanning the ledges to see where the ocean storms have turned up the, the sand and started to expose more teeth in certain pockets. So it's constantly changing and shifting environment in that sense that things move around. And we're trying to find where these giant fossilized rocks, these shark teeth are. That's a super interesting, I, I guess I had never really thought of it until I started doing some research on you. And I think the meg tooth hunting is like 
Super cool. Um, if you want to talk for a few minutes about some of your experiences there, it's cool stuff you found, just even how the process works, I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. It's easy for anybody to come down and try it in the sense that there's some fantastic operators out here like Jetlag and WB Diving, people that will take you out as a paying client and they are constantly combing the ledges to try and find where the teeth are. So it is a full-time job for them to be able to provide the charter boat customers with a location that they think is going to produce teeth. And then it becomes a really fun and exciting day when people have never found a tooth and you come up with this huge shark tooth. I mean, a five, six inch tooth would have been from a 50 to 60 foot shark that roamed this planet two to 20 million years ago. It's quite fascinating to pull something up out of the ocean, which is so unique. And it's centralized just to certain parts of the world. So about 40 miles offshore of the Carolina Beach and Wrightsville Beach area, we have the frying pan shoals, which surrounding that area, there's a limestone bed and the sharks from millions of years ago, these giant dinosaur-sized sharks that were the size of a building in Manhattan, would when they when they fed, they would shed their teeth. They had three rows of these monstrous teeth. And over time, these teeth ended up fossilizing in the mineral beds and the limestone. And the ocean currents are constantly wearing that limestone away into sand. And it's exposing these teeth as that layer gets just pummeled over over time by natural sand blasting and ocean currents. So when we get a big hurricane, what that's doing is that's shifting everything around on the bottom and it's exposing different pockets that consist of, it looks like a rubble field. It's just all, um, there's some coral and rocks, but there's also whale bones, rib bones, ear bones, vertebrae, shark teeth. And to hunt each site becomes very unique. So the hardest thing to find is a really good mentor. And there's a small handful of people that do it full time. And if you find the right one, then they'll start to teach you how to hunt each individual site. So I've been working with Weston Collections lately. And, you know, coming from someone that did this full time for 11 years, uh, you, you learn different ways to, to read the bottom and where you think the teeth would be. So my favorite kind of tooth dive is when there's really pretty terrain, like maybe some fingers of, of corals that are above the, the sand bottom. And you have to develop an eye over time to swim around and pick out the heart shape. Or maybe it's just part of the tooth sticking up, right? And it's very exciting. So you have to make sure uh, navigation-wise you can get yourself back to the anchor line. Because remember, we're 40 miles offshore and swells can pick up at any given time. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of North Carolina. So you really want to get back to that anchor line. So, you know, imagine you're, you're going like 100, 200 feet or, or farther from, from the anchor line. You want to make sure to, to run a reel. And this is where important training comes in. Also, I like to do a John Chattern type of technique, which is dropping strobes along the way as well. So if I hit a pocket of teeth and I, I lock my reel and I drop it, I... I want to make sure if I'm silting things out, kind of looking around for them, that I can get back to the boat in a safe manner. So Dan did a study, which was very interesting, about tooth fever, which is a very real phenomenon. And you'll, you'll hear the charter boat captains when you go out talk about it. And it's like an adult Easter egg hunt. So you're finding these things and they're valuable. I mean, 
you're bagging up these things that are literally worth money. And if you're having a day where you're, you're doing well and you're, you're finding them and finding them, that's when it gets very tempting to start to break your gas management rules or break your non-decompression rules or, or push how much decompression you're going to do. And remember, we bring a finite cubic feet of gas with us to do our decompression. Even on a rebreather, we still have to monitor our gas reserves, especially our bailout. So when you're in this excited state of mind and you're finding all these teeth, which are worth money, you have to have the self-control to be able to stick to your dive plan. And that's one of the hardest things about toothing. And that's what kills a lot, a lot of people, unfortunately, doing this. Whether they're experienced or inexperienced, we get stories of people that don't manage their gas or they find them sometimes with the weight belt still on. So what that says is when you're doing an activity that can change the focus of your diving, and you're also a little narc down there at, at 100 feet, I like to put some light helium in. <laughs> But if you're having a day where you are feeling slight narcosis down at 100 feet, then now you're not making the best decisions on top of the tooth fever. So, you know, we all know being narked, it, it can amplify whatever you're feeling. And if you're feeling excited, it's almost like being a little bit tipsy. And now are you going to make the best decisions? So it takes a lot of willpower and self-control to be able to end your tooth dives in a timely manner. Wow. And I had never thought about it like that at all. That's a good, that's a really good way of putting that. Um, it's like an adult Easter egg hunt. That's with high stakes. It's an adult Easter egg hunt with a hundred in each egg. You know? <laughs> um, it really yeah, is. That's, that's, it really yeah. is. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, I want to get into some of the other kind of stuff you've done as well. I mean, I'd love, if you want to circle back to the sure. hunting at any point, let me know. Cause I think it's super interesting. Um, but you've done a bunch of other interesting stuff as well. And so if you've, you have dived in so many different varied locations uh, and ecosystems and environmental areas. So I'd, I'd love to hear about some of the differences between being in a lake, an ocean, in a cave, in uh, extremely cold temperatures, stuff like that. What are some of the differences, um, difficulties to consider, even uh, some of your favorite areas to dive and why? I like to dive anywhere that is beautiful, which is most places in the world. So I think I just like to be out in nature and I don't get bored very easily. So just exploring what's underwater in a new country or a new dive site anywhere in the world. I think I like variety and I do have some favorites. You know, I love the Meg teeth. The Mexican caves are, are beautiful. Mexican caves are stunning. Canada actually is surprisingly gorgeous and the people are ridiculously friendly and it's very cold water, but you learn to adapt to it. So with the right equipment, you can be warm even if you don't have any cold tolerance like me. I can't handle the cold, but <laughs> but I do. And I'll go out and I'll find a way to be comfortable ice diving with the right amount of layers and heat and full face mask. I learned a lot of that from the, going up to Canada, diving with the Canadians, and they dive all year round. They don't seem to be uncomfortable. So, you know, sometimes you can have a, a cold day for sure. But as they say at Ocean Quest, give it a shiver because... There's some fantastic things to, to see. And when you're looking at a World War II shipwreck off Bell Island, and you can see for miles, it feels like, and you're swimming over this underwater museum, but grave site as well. So, you know, when the water is, is in the 30s, you start to, to forget it when you have something beautiful to look at and when you dress appropriately. Sure. Something more uh, impressive. So in terms, I was curious about cave diving. How talk to me a bit about your experience of the cave diving, how it works, um, the differences in 
you know, diving in a cave as opposed to in the open ocean? Sure. Well, the difference is with a cave versus decompression diving in the ocean. Uh, in, in the ocean, you have a theoretical ceiling. And also, you do want to come up that anchor line so you're not a needle in a haystack. But in a cave, there are no second chances in the sense that you need to exit laterally. So if you get lost in a shipwreck and you pop a bag and you tie it off to the wreck, you know, you're going to owe the captain some beer, right? Um, or, and if you can't do that, hopefully you brought your Nautilus radio with you. But there's, you, you have a chance. If you're in a cave, you need to come out the same way that you went back in. And so I agree with the philosophy, which is progressive learning, progressive penetration into a cave. So it took me years to work my way back two miles inside Jack's Blue Cave System up in Florida. But I think what it comes down to is just growing at a slow enough pace that, you know, you eventually deal with failures inside of a cave with your equipment and whether it be open circuit or rebreather. And each time you experience something like that and, and you get out safely based on your bailout plan, then it makes you realize, you know, if you're a mile back in a cave and your rebreather falls apart on you, you need to be comfortable swimming out or if, especially if your scooter dies, you know, swimming out on your open circuit gas. And so with cave diving, it's important to research your instructor and work your way up progressively at the levels, but take time in between to do some diving in between each level. You know, when I see people go straight from tech into full cave rebreather, DPV, cave diver in, in a couple of years, um, scares me a little bit just because they're going to be one or two miles back one day and they're going to have a failure. And to be calm when you're way back in a cave and you have um, either open circuit or rebreather failure, it all comes down to experience at that point, training as well. But for me, it helps me to stay calm if I'm dealing with a situation that I've either dealt with before or I know I've staged the cave properly with all my bailouts. A lot of it's that comfort under pressure that only comes with experience doing that kind of stuff. And if you're in a situation like a cave, it can get dangerous very quickly, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to talk about some of the shipwreck dives as well, because you've done some really interesting ones um, with a capstone, I'm sure, with the Andrea Doria. So if you could talk about your experiences with shipwreck diving and how mind-blowing that must be, you know, seeing the human artifacts under the water like that. If you could talk about your experiences, that'd be great. Sure. So I talked a little bit about the Bell Island Rex with Ocean Quest and Joe Heiner and places like, like that and Chuck Lagoon, when you see these shipwrecks, which are so historical and underwater grave sites and a lot of the artifacts are still intact and present, just like an underwater museum. To be honest, it just makes me grateful that we, we're not living through physical World War III right now. We're living through COVID, which is a, a world war in, in a sense, and it's definitely greatly affected all of us this year. Um, you know, but then stepping away from COVID and then diving a shipwreck and realizing, hey, you know what? Maybe life could be worse. <laughs> you know, we're not dropping bombs on each other. Sure. Um, it's just it's just a virus. But shipwrecks, other than the historical viewpoint on them, I grew up tech diving in the Northeast. So when I was based in New York City and um, I had two different walks of life, I was full-time dance student at Broadway Dance Center for a number of years. And then I also had 
some time when I threw on a business suit and I used my degree and I worked in finance downtown. So on the weekends, we have thousands of shipwrecks off the coast of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut and Rhode Island. So we have everything from U-boats to just historical shipwrecks that went down. So you have the Italian ship, the Andrea Doria, that had a tragic run-in with an icebreaker ship 100 miles as the crow flies from New York. Then you've got German U-boats, the U-853 off Rhode Island and the U-869 off uh, New Jersey. And, you know, just being in Manhattan on, on the weekends, it was a way to just get out of the city and dive my local waters. Unfortunately, the trips on Adoria this year are canceled again from COVID. We had a large group of Italians on the old salty one week, and we had John Chatterton's group another week. And we're just making the call based on the safety of the world right now. I know we have vaccines rolling out, but the truth of the matter is, is that the virus is still very prevalent. And so unfortunately, um, having a trip with a lot of people, you know, 12 divers plus captain and crew in, in close quarters, although Old Salty is a pretty massive boat. Yeah, that's great. The concept of shipwreck diving seems uh, super interesting and a little scary to me. <laughs> this exactly seems like a crazy uh, history lesson that most people don't get that close to. So that's really cool. That you get to do that kind of stuff. I want to talk about, you do underwater photography, correct? I do underwater photography. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that. I think nature, uh, videography, photography, that kind of stuff is not only important, but extremely exciting as a media guy. I, uh, nerd out about it a lot. And so I'd love to hear about what underwater photography feels like for you. What, how does it work? And some of the shots that you love that you've taken. Sure. I love doing underwater photography and videography. So a lot of it is about lighting. And over the years, I've started to accumulate more and more lights for the dark places. So cave diving photography or any kind of deep, dark place. I've got some 30,000 lumen lights and it's all about getting good exposure to get a good shot, good exposure and good composition. Which is difficult to do when you're underwater in a suit with a big camera rig, I'm sure. <laughs> I like to make my camera rig neutrally buoyant. So nice. I add some floats to it so it's not super heavy. And then for video, a lot of times I just have a little GoPro because if I'm working in the ocean to get teeth and I see something cool, I just want a little device to record with. So it's a very handy tool. And yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, I want to, I guess I'd like to know briefly what you love most about the water, about the ocean. Uh, Blue Earth, the show, our focus is to bring awareness to different facets and types of people and, and how we all interact with water. So I'd love to hear about just why you love water, what got you into it. I know you spent time on sailboats as a kid. Um, what are some of those just individual aspects of your life that made you fall in love with being in the ocean and made it your life? Being in the ocean is like being on another planet. Every dive I've done, I've seen something new and interesting. Even if it was a sea creature that I've seen before, if I get bored, I stop and I watch things. And all these underwater sea creatures, I mean, they really are like aliens. It's a whole other world down there. And they've adapted differently to the environments all over the world. If I ever get bored and I just start watching sea creatures, <laughs> it's like watching a movie. It's very fascinating and it's also beautiful. So I think just becoming charmed by this otherworldly place, which is just right below our feet, it just makes me keep going back to it time and time again. Not to mention, unless you have comms on, nobody can talk to you. 
we try and talk on Ruby and nobody can understand us, but it's very calm and peaceful down there. Just you and the, the alien world that's around you. Yeah. yeah. Unless I'm yelling at my students through my regulator and writing, writing <laughs> yelling notes at them and stuff. Yeah. So if you want to link any social media or your website or anything like that, uh, feel free to, we'd love to have you share it with our listeners in case they want to, to find out more about you and get in touch. I have a YouTube channel for urban Manta and also Instagram and Facebook. And I post all of my dive adventures on there so on the youtube channel if you want to take a look at some of the different shipwreck or megalodon teeth or cave diving trips or videos that i've produced from different explorations and trips around the world i have that all on urban Manta youtube awesome yeah we'll uh we'll definitely link that or put it on our twitter or something like that um we'll put that in the description um those handles uh, and yeah, Sandra, thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk. This was great. Learned a lot of good stuff. So thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. We're brought to you, as always, by the CT Scuba Academy. And we release episodes every Monday. So be sure to check us out everywhere you get podcasts. You can subscribe to our Twitter at Blue Earth Pod. And you can find all of our episodes as well on the CT Scuba website. Thank you.